this morning's sermon as we get going, just a little bit of announcement. It is brought to you by the One-Armed Man, and yeah, I was actually putting the wraps up on this yesterday. Uh, Friday, was I, was I was hoping to get my message all done, and that didn't happen, so threw my Saturday off, and I don't usually wait till the weekend. It doesn't always happen, but uh, it did happen this week where it didn't quite get on things as early as I wanted to. And just in case you're wondering, I didn't get a chance to talk to everyone, so I'll just share this explanation with you briefly this morning as to how uh, the one-armed man thing happened. Friday afternoon, uh, I took a couple of bags of garbage out. What, what? Was it Thursday? Why was I thinking it was Friday? It was Thursday or Friday, how about that? <laughs> the wife's always right. It was Thursday. I was taking a couple of bags of garbage out to, you know, the bins out there in front, and, and I, thought this was, I thought this was really smart. I thought this was a good move. Um, you know, instead of dragging my garbage to those bins across that uh, miniature Michigan tundra I've got out here, I thought I'd put the, the trash bags in the back of the Flex, in the back of the Ford Flex, and, and drive it out to the end of the road, and that way I wouldn't hurt myself on the ice. Huh. <laughs> There's ice out there at the end of the road, too. It, it doesn't just stop up here, you know. It, it, it can happen out there. I, I didn't know that. So um, I did manage to get the garbage in the bins first, or this could have been an even more colorful story. But I did that, you know, terrible right step, and then, whoa, and um, landed on my left wrist because... Uh, a pinched nerve on the left side and an extruded disc in the lower back just isn't enough pain for me. I, I want more, more pain. No pain, no gain, right? So, and I'm not the only person to recently uh, take a drop to the ground because it's slippery. We've had several people. Uh, we missed Rich up here this morning playing. Uh, he took a spill this morning. Actually, he emailed me, and I, and I think the very next day I slipped after he slipped. So it's your fault, Rich, for letting me know. <laughs> At you fall. Of course, Hannah, uh, my own Hannah, uh, slipped and fell and uh, did, did suffer a mild concussion. I was glad I took her to the ER. Of course, Lisa uh, uh, had, a, uh, had to have surgery. So there's been quite a few people. Um, the moral of the story here is you have to be careful when you put yourself on ice because it's quite possible it will bring you down. Luke, don't leave. I need you to laugh. So I got a cute-looking splint in case of what they call a scaphoid fracture. Uh, apparently some widening near the joint by my thumb and wrist uh, brought the ER team to this precaution. And just in case you're keeping track, of home, track at home, I'm still, yes, waiting on an appointment with a neurosurgeon in regards to these other issues. At this point, I'm just trying to survive another day. One option I've considered, I've had three people uh, uh, suggest that I start wrapping myself in bubble wrap. So there's that. Uh, someone else told me that when it comes to hurting myself, I'm, I'm on a real roll with misfortune. I've heard that. I received a text after I came home from the ER, and someone told me I was on fire. And I said, yes, I do look like I've, I've been on fire. But fire, speaking of fire, is both our sermon title today and it's our topic for today's sermon in this uh, Daniel Sermon Plan series. We're going to be talking through the, uh, the third chapter of the book of Daniel, part three. And i uh, got kind of a funny little uh, excursion I'd like to take before we jump into the Word. Have you ever heard anyone say, uh, maybe in a conversation, maybe on TV, maybe in a classroom somewhere on social media, something like, well, we... 
We, we don't really have freedom of speech in this country. You, you can't really just say anything you want to all of the time. And, and maybe you're standing there and you're trying to dissect what the individual's uh, saying, trying to make sense of it. Then the next statement in their tangent might go something like this. For example, you can't shout the word fire in a crowded theater. So, you know, we, we don't really have free speech in this country. And you're standing there trying to understand exactly what this person's going off more while trying to come up with a flight plan out of the conversation, you know. And then something hits you that shouting fire in a crowded theater, people like to bring it up and mention it. it doesn't really have anything to do with free speech. It doesn't have anything to do with that. That is freedom of expression. But shouting fire in a crowded theater has everything to do with dangerous speech. I actually looked this up this week. Um, and I thought this was interesting. I found this article written by an attorney on this very scenario. Shouting fire in a crowded theater actually refers, maybe some of you know this, to an outdated interpretation uh, of our court system. At one point, the U.S. law actually criminalized this speech. Actually criminalized. I thought that was interesting. Uh, creating what we think of as a clear and present danger. I guess there's a film by the same name. An individual could break the law at one time by yelling fire in a crowded theater. That was actually against the law. But since 1969, the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, I've always wanted to say that into a microphone, for speech to actually break the law, to be unfree, if you will, it can't merely just lead others to a dangerous situation. It goes on, the speech must also directly encourage others to commit specific criminal actions. So the way I understand free speech here, someone shouting fire in a crowded theater must be proven as inciting imminent lawlessness to be convicted as being uh, illegal speech. So this means another thing, and the reason why I'm mentioning all this, you're probably wondering, no matter how unpopular, no matter how unpopular against the grain someone's speech might be, in this country, they're still free to speak. They're still free to say what they wish to say. And that's actually really good news. It might be unpopular for an American Christian in the year 2019 to warn his or her neighbors of the dangers of hellfire outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, it is yours, it is my biblical prerogative to be warning the masses about eternal damnation, to be proverbially shouting fire. Unlike Christians, say, in China, you're constitutionally protected to do so. That's really good news. But here's how all this talk relates to our message this morning. We sang that song a little bit ago. I love that song, Refiner's Fire. God has actually allowed for multiple uses for fire, spiritually speaking. And I'm not talking about an indoor building fire now or the kind of fire that happens to me when I try to make macaroni and cheese on the stove. <laughs> For those outside of the will of God, as we said, an eternal fire has been prepared, Mark 9.48. That's one of those things we don't like to talk about, we don't like to hear. There's a lot of pulpits that don't want to uh, go into that, but that's what the Bible says, Mark 9.48. There's an eternal fire that has been prepared. This is the kind of fire that we want to shout about to the crowd, isn't it? That's kind of our purpose at this point. But for those who trust and believe in God, there's another kind of fire. Another kind of fire. God the refiner's fire. If you uh, want to take a note, I don't have this up on the screen, but it's mentioned in Zechariah 13, Malachi chapter 3, 1 Peter 1, 7, and I'll say that again, uh, Zechariah 13, Malachi chapter 3, 
and 1 Peter 1.7. If you recall, we actually went through uh, the book of Malachi not too long ago in the messages from Malachi series. We talked through this another time. This fire, God the refiner's fire, makes us holy. We sang about that a little while ago. And there are other scriptures, there's other scriptural examples where God's people are refined, were purified, were tested by fire. Often, this is uh, metaphorical in the Bible for our afflictions in this life. Isaiah 48, 10. Today's text from Daniel chapter 3, however, certainly features a literal fire for just a few of God's people. But before we get there, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with these characters where we left them off. What's going on with Daniel and his companions since last week? Well, if you remember at the end of chapter 2, if you were here last week for that, we know they received promotions. They were promoted from just these servants to rulers over the affairs of Babylon. This happens in Daniel chapter 2, verses 48 and 49, if you remember. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was left in kind of a humble frame of mind, you might say. This was at the end of, of the second chapter, but by this point, he's now bounced back into feeling full of himself again. That's quite obvious. That's quite obvious from the shift in action. The king, if you remember, was just told by Daniel. He just went through this. He just interpreted this dream that neither the, uh, his kingdom, neither Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, nor future kingdoms to follow were going to stand. We're going to hold under the God of heaven. Chapter 2, verse 44. It was just made so clear to Nebuchadnezzar that no temporary human pursuit, nor construction, nor dedication could withstand the plan and hand and glory of God, right? You remember this? Remember this from a week ago? So what does the king turn right around and do with this information? He constructs a massively gaudy golden image, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, for the purpose of pagan worship. Verse 5. That's an interesting response. If you don't have a Bible open, please grab one. Might be one there in your, in your pews or if you brought one with you. Open to Daniel chapter 3 with me. Just start skimming with me here in verse 1. We're going to talk through uh, this text together in the chapter. Now, this idol that is constructed, this thing is huge. The, uh, the Bible actually gives us the exact size of this golden image. It, it's height measuring 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. So this also equals 90 feet high and nine feet across, if you can, if you can imagine that. So we're talking a huge hunk of gold at very awkward proportions. Very awkward. Commentators note that although this golden image that built by the king would certainly have been impressive and unusual, it was certainly not the only one of its kind from the time. So let's, let's consider this culturally, historically. Uh, we're aware of an ancient Babylonian temple dedicated to with the features of Zeus, and some of these images are known to have been 40 or 50 cubits high. The Colossus at Rhodes is believed to have actually been 70. Wow. So what was the point of this? What was the point of these kinds of constructions, these buildings, uh, these gigantic monuments? As one author notes, the point was to impress. The point was to impress. Nobody's got a taller image of gold than, than King Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody's got more wealth. Nobody shows more might. 
When we look in the text there, we're told that the king constructed it on the plain of Dura. I did a little bit of digging on this. It uh, turns out Dura was actually a common name in ancient Mesopotamia. But the most likely location for this golden image was at a mound located six miles southeast of Babylon. This proximity to the city would have been convenient. Its location in the Plain Valley would have made this image's height all the more outlandish. And people would respect it. People would see it coming. The king was going to make sure of that. And the king was going to make sure of that in such a way he's going to gather all of his Babylonian officials directly to the image. Look, look there with me in your Bibles, verses 2 and 3. What's he going to do? He's going to gather all these guys, all these people for the purpose of bowing down to it. You know, it's interesting in a way today, speaking of current events, you know, some of us may or may not support uh, the multi-billion dollar building of a great U.S. border wall, but I think that, that many of us do understand that it has a great purpose, right? Uh, there's a purpose to a border wall. Uh, the idea is to protect U.S. citizens and the land on this side of it. No, so no matter how you feel about the situation, no matter how you feel about the building of a wall, the apparent intent for this building project is for the good of the American people. But King Nebuchadnezzar's building of his great golden wall was for the good of no one but King Nebuchadnezzar. Wasn't for anybody else. Wasn't to help anyone. And what's interesting is though the king was still expecting those around him to pay tribute to these Babylonian gods of, of this culture that, that worship many gods, if you look at the text, I, I don't think this golden image the king built was about Bel or Marduk or other gods of Babylon. I think the king is thinking to himself, hey, you know, I think I deserve a great honor. I think I can build this thing all for me. Why not? I'm the one with the gold and the power. I'm the one that can call every single government official together to do what I want. I'm the one that can pull together fighting units and overtake nations and give and take away resources and consult with any number of advisors and command people of many cultures. They all answer to me. They're mine. This is my golden image. And you know what? People are going to bow down to it. It's an extension of my greatness. So what does he do? He sounds, verse 4, look at, look at me with this, uh, uh, not, not look at me, look at your text, with me, we'll try that. <laughs> Preacher, we don't want to look at you anymore, we're tired of that. Go ahead, sound the horn, the pipe, the lyre, uh, the trigon, the harp, and the bag, bagpipe. Think about this, the king has brought in the equivalent of an ancient Super Bowl halftime show to kick off this occasion. I mean, really, it's kind of ridiculous. Look at all this hoopla for bowing down time. If you work for the king, you're going to bow to the king. Strike up the band and look at all the people that are going to be here. Governors, counselors, treasurers, justices. All these guys summoned before this image. Now, if you're like me, and if you are, I feel sorry for your spouse. That one will never get old. But if you're like me, maybe, you want, maybe you're going through this list and you wonder from this list, what are some of these guys? Uh, well, what's a satrap? Who are the, who are the prefects? And, and here's where we, we need to do some digging into the ancient Aramaic language. Uh, the Aramaic pops up in parts of Daniel in, in the book of Ezra. And I actually looked these up. What we could translate satrap could also be rendered prince. One source explains these were administrators. These were guardians or chief representatives of the king. 
Um, now, the word we translate prefect, I believe that's next there in that list in verse 2. This could also be translated governors. They were the commanders. They were the, the, the military chiefs. Then, not to confuse you, but then the word governor in our text could also be rendered captain, uh, referring to maybe some presidents or uh, those that would govern or the civil government. There's some other titles here. We'll just mention them real quick. We had counselors, uh, judges and arbitrators. Uh, that's who they were. Uh, treasurers, who obviously tended the public treasury. That one, uh, we still keep that title often today. And counselors, you might have guessed who the counselors were. Lawyers. This means that that old joke does go back a few years. You know the one, what do you call a million Babylonian attorneys at the bottom of the sea? A pretty good start. I'll be here all week. Finally, we see in the list here magistrates, which could also be rendered sheriffs. So this is the kind of crowd the king had invited to this spectacle. This is what they did when they weren't, you know, following such whims as follow the king out to this old mound six miles by the uh, city to bow down to a statue of gold, because this was important. The king made this decree so important about worshiping the golden image. Look at verse 6. I mean, he was off his rocker. He was really off his rocker here. Look at this. Whoever does not fall down, and, uh, fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, folks, this is the proverbial yelling of fire in a crowded movie theater right before you strike yourself the match over a puddle of flammable fluid. For anyone else making this threat, Declaring fire would be lawlessness. But this is the king. This is the king Nebuchadnezzar himself striking up a band to signal, verse 4, all the peoples, nations, and languages. If you don't bow before the gold, you're going to personally face the heat. This is the king. Well, you remember those uh, ancient Chaldeans, those wise men. We've talked about them uh, both weeks, I believe, leading up till today. You know, the ones who uh, Daniel and his buddy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego managed to show up in the last chapter, not look quite as wise, not look at quite as impressive. I wonder if these guys maybe weren't very happy after that whole dream interpretation incident. I'm wondering if maybe there was a little bit of a grudge being held against those Jews. I'm wondering if maybe it, it pleased a few of those Babylonian intellectuals to witness Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to follow the king's orders, refusing to bow to his golden image. Go ahead and look in your Bibles there. Skim the text through verse 12. I'm wondering if maybe these Chaldeans aren't probably as li likely as concerned with Babylonian justice not quite as concerned with these three Jews bowing to a golden image, as much as they are making sure something very bad happens to them. Look at verse 12 with me. These wise men, these Chaldeans, they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar. They're standing there. They're going to they're gonna rat these guys out. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I'm kind of reminded of second grade here when I read the dialogue of these guys. You remember when one of your classmates uh, uh, you know, told the teacher on you for throwing a couple of rocks outside or whatever? Whatever you did, that, you know, throwing rocks outside is code for whatever, fill in the blank. Now, these kids always threw rocks too. Do you think they actually cared as much about justice uh, for rock throwing at school as much as they did you know, getting Mrs. Schenkel to yell at you for throwing rocks so they could laugh at you? These Chaldeans, they thought they'd be laughing 
to the bitter end. Go ahead and look through verses 13 to 18 with me. They, they describe here how the king uh, calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, questions them uh, whether they're serving his Babylonian gods and worshiping, quote, the golden image I have set up. Verse 14. King wants to make sure when the band strikes up, it's a call to worship. You know, I laughed at that a little bit ago, but we have a praise band here. We have a praise band here. And um, I, I don't know what a trigon is. Maybe I should have considered playing that since I can't do the bass right now. Cody, do you know what a trigon is? I forgot to look that up. If you fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, says the king. Again, it's decreed. The king gives these three guys a final warning, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, if you do not worship, it's going to get hot, real hot. Verse 15, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The king has just been told all about the God of Israel. He's just had this dream interpreted by the God of Israel. He's forgotten the God of Israel. But before we give away the God of Israel's big surprise for King Nebuchadnezzar, I'd like to stop and, and talk through a couple of questions. When I was going through the text this, this week, they, they nagged at me a little bit through my own personal study. Number one, does it bother you at all when you're reading this, this text that these Chaldeans only brought uh, these three in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why not Daniel? Why isn't Daniel part of this story? Um, you know, he'd surely bow only before the God of Israel too, right? Why isn't he in, included in these charges? And the Bible doesn't exactly explain why the charge wasn't extended against Daniel, but we're left with a few possible answers. This bugged me enough to uh, look this up and include it. One theologian writes, perhaps Daniel considered bowing to the image as a political act which did not violate his conscience. Now, I personally have a problem with this statement. Because we remember back in chapter 1, Daniel wouldn't defile his diet, right? So why would he justify defiling his spiritual life by worshiping a golden image by bowing to it? But here's another possibility he wasn't called before the king. Perhaps, quote, Daniel, for some reason, was absent. You know, maybe he was gone that day that the king demanded worship. Perhaps. Here's a third possibility. Daniel was present that day of image worship, but did not worship and his high office in Babylon prevented his enemies from accusing him. That's quite possible. Remember, Daniel arranged in a previous chapter the promotion of these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so this explanation might fit the bill. Whatever reason, whatever reason Daniel isn't lumped in here with these charges, we know what? We know God is going to stay faithful to his own, to the ones that stayed faithful. So how did they answer? How did they answer the charge up close and personal? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is to say what God will deliver us. We don't need to tell you that. We don't need to mention that. If this be so, the text continues, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Do you think that was easy to say that? Do you think that response took some faith? Here's the second question we may ask of the text before we proceed. What is this fiery furnace like? My short answer to that question is, have you ever driven through Atlanta, Georgia? 
One commentator from about a century ago compared the fiery furnace to the then modern invention of the lime kiln. K-I-L-N. Are you familiar with the lime kiln? Do you know what that is? I wasn't either, but that's what the internet's for. A lime kiln was once used by many a farmer to produce lime to lower the acidic level of the soil. Now today you can purchase the stuff. But there was a time in which, like many things, it was more easily uh, produced excuse me, by the individual. According to one source, these lime kilns would be built into the side of a hill so that limestone could be easily shoveled into an opening in the top. The stone was crushed into smaller lumps before being put in the kiln. And then a fire was kindled in the bottom of the kiln. The material was broken down at about 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot. 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Then the lime would be cooled, shoveled out through an opening in the bottom of the kiln. Now, I'd like you to picture human beings being placed into a shaft at the top of such a device with an opening at the bottom, you know, extracting the remains. It wasn't lime. Keep this in mind, at 162 degrees, human tissue is destroyed on contact. Now skim with me through verse 23 in our text. In verse 19, when Nebuchadnezzar hears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship these Babylonian gods and worship the golden image, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Verse 19, right? We can basically guess the temperature within the fiery furnace exceeded 1,000 degrees. And by the way, they cremate bodies at 1,400 degrees. You could feel the heat of this human kiln, this fiery furnace, from hundreds of yards away. Scripture says that the men from the king's army who bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, put them in tunics, hats, etc., which would have made it even more comfortable going in, were actually overtaken themselves by the flames just by getting close enough to throw them inside. Verse 22, this is fire in a crowded place. I'd like to switch gears just a moment this morning, and I'd like to ask you what might be a difficult question. Kind of follows up a question a moment ago about their response to the king. If you, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but you, if you, my friend, were told you would be thrown into a fiery furnace for your beliefs, how would you respond? What would you say? If you knew you would be instantly placed within the fires of a crematorium while living and breathing, burning alive, would you hold faithful to the refiner who could use the flame for his purposes? Or would you sell out? You know, I don't really need this, 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 this faith thing, this religion. That's, it's, it's, it's okay, whatever you want, king, you know. Would you sell out and bow to preserve yourself now? This previous uh, Tuesday or Wednesday? This previous Tuesday, I believe, I asked this very question on my Facebook page. I had kind of a little bit of an experiment. I was curious to see how uh, different uh, social media friends of mine might answer this question. I'm friends with Christians I'm on Facebook. I'm friends with Christians of different denominations on Facebook. I'm friends with atheists on Facebook, and I wanted to see how people would uh, respond just kind of offhandedly uh, based on where they were coming from. Should their faith be tested by fire or their beliefs? 
Once again, the question was, if you were told you would be thrown into a fiery furnace for your beliefs, how would you respond? And as you're sitting there pondering your own answer, I'd like to share just a few of the answers I received online. I did uh, throw out a disclaimer that I was going to be doing that. One individual answered, I can't answer, but I pray God would give me the strength to answer that his will be done. Another said, I pray that my faith would be strong enough going into the fire. Someone else agreed with this and added, I would obviously be afraid, but I would never cease praying. One person responded with, I would rather be thrown in the fire for my beliefs than be thrown in for not being honest about them. And still another reply came, God will give us the words to say when the time comes, Colossians 4, 6. And I thought these were excellent answers. Responses like these that I just received offhandedly on social media, these gave me some hope. Uh, you know, responses like these uh, gave your preacher hope that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not exhibit character which is confined to this story. It gives you a boost to hear of someone talk of personal faith that, that God will save them, that they needn't fear when the heat is on. I received some other kinds of responses to my question as well. There were some goofy ones. And, and I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and let you choose your own favorite goofy answer to this question. A, nothing like a little sauna time. B, I'm sorry I wanted Don smoking. Or C, I fell into a burning ring of fire. I liked all of those as well. There were several other responses to the question given, and I appreciated everyone that, that took the time and uh, responded to me. But there were two more I wanted to briefly mention before we move on in our text. One of the responses contained this, quote, if we do not question our beliefs, how can they be considered tested and true, like gold tried in a fire? Hmm. Another individual said, that fiery furnace is always there if we deny Jesus or fail to repent and seek the will of God. And it kind of brings me back to where we started this morning. Will we endure the refiner's fire to be tested and made true now? Or will we choose the eternal fire outside of the will of God? The question runs deep. In this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 18, choose to be refined. They, they know that God is right with them. King, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the gold image that you have set up. It means they're fire-bound or they're bound and thrown in the fire. Shortly thereafter, uh, the king notices something strange. He asks of some of his people, weren't there three men bound into the fire? In verse 24, he continues, I see four. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The appearance, of the, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't have their focus on the fire they were being thrown into. Their focus was on the one who won't allow his own to burn. Big difference. Big difference on where our focus lies in this life and how we handle it. In verse 26, the king, now as close as he can get to the door of the fiery furnace, yells, yells at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, come here. They appear completely unscathed by the fiery furnace, verse 27. And the king isn't demanding they bow to him anymore. <laughs> When's he going to learn, right? When's this guy going to learn? 
Verse 28, the king addresses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as servants of the Most High God. And now we're ready for our highlighted text of the morning on the overhead. Just to do something different, I saved it for the end of the sermon today. I thought, Karen's going to love this. Daniel 3.28 is on the screen behind me. Follow the text with me. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Amen. Can we pray this scripture? Can we take this scripture to heart? Can we live by this scripture? It might make a difference on how we handle the circumstances of this life. Daniel chapter 3 ends with the king giving these three believers his complete protection as well as another promotion. You know, I like a, I like a promotion, but man, I don't like having to go through this to get it, you know? Why does he do it? Verse 30, verse 29, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Look at the way God used fire for refining as well as convicting. And so today, as God's followers, we don't know what awaits us here in this life. We know we are going to find ourselves in the hot seat from time to time. And the thought is, can we make a choice not for this world, not for what's going on around us, not, not for the easy way out, not for denying what's eternal for what we've got right here, not a choice for temporary Babylon, but on the eternal promises of the Lord. Babylon and its gods are long gone. We have memory of them because of our Bibles. But they're long since disappeared from history. The same fate awaits all that is here in this place. One day it too will be long gone, my friends. What will stand is the refiner who will still be redeeming lives for his own glory. He's going to take us. He's going to allow us to be put in some fiery furnaces. But he's going to do it in part so that we can beat the eternal heat. May we stand on these promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you now thankful again for your word. Thankful again, every, every chapter and, and every, every verse of, of this great, holy, anointed collection of books that we've been given is from you. Lord, each one of us has a, has a, has a little bit of a different path we're living. None of them are easy. Each one of us has, has difficulties in this world. And Lord, we may not have 
all the answers to all of our problems or all the solutions. But once again, Lord, we know that you do. And we know that ultimately you are the answer. Lord, I pray that, that once again you, you would convict us and remind us uh, just how short our time here is. Lord, we know every day, every week, every month, every year, uh, we, we watch more friends uh, pass on. Lord, we see those around us suffer. We watch them go into your arms. And Lord, it is a reminder to us that eventually every single person in this room is going to stand before you. And on that day, we're going to either stand on your promises or we're going to be lost forever. God, help us. Speak to our hearts. Remind us of how we're loved. Remind us of how we're treasured. Remind us, Lord, of your love for us, that we're worth dying for. Remind us, Lord, that you're coming back and help us to hold on to you and your word. God, we know uh, these stories, these, these people that, that you have come down to and blessed in your word, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And we know how they, they have been blessed by you. But Lord, it took obedience on their part. pray, Lord, that you would convict each one of us in our lives where we need to make some sacrifices for the refiner. Mold us and shape us. Bring us home to you. It is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Today we've got a wonderful invitation song called Our God Saves. And uh, so appropriate, so appropriately titled, and we're, we're looking forward to singing this one. And as we do, um, I have a challenge for you that you would look in your own life and see, see what needs to be refined. Sometimes those things in our life, uh, we need to, to give up. We need to take to God and say, this, this isn't right. In this place in my life, I need you to come in, Lord. And for you, if you haven't yet made a decision where it all begins, going into those waters of baptism and coming up a new creation, you know, this is where it begins. This is, this is not where it ends. And you don't have to be uh, good enough. You don't have to be a certain person. This is where Jesus begins to work on you in your life in a real way through the gift of the Holy Spirit is at baptism. Don't be held back. Come forward. Go down into the water. Come up a new person. Or if you have another decision that you'd like to make, we invite you to come forward. We're going to stand and sing, Our God Saves. <laughs>